Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We've uh, started a series a couple of weeks ago on the book of Hebrews, and we're trying to go through verse by verse. Um, the book of Hebrews used to be something that was, um, well, uh, to be real honest with you, I just didn't enjoy the book of Hebrews very much. There were specific scriptures that, that I'd pull out of there and that, um, that were a blessing, but overall the book of Hebrews was um, hard for me to understand until I came to realize that this is the key to understanding Paul's revelation. Now, what I mean by that is very simply this. I believe, and I've said this, we went into some detail a couple of weeks ago, I believe Paul was the writer of the book of Hebrews. Um, whether that's true or not, I mean, if, I, if I'm wrong on that, then Jesus can straighten us out when we get to heaven. But um, uh, whether I'm right on that or not, we know the Holy Ghost inspired it. And whoever wrote the book of Hebrews had the same understanding that Paul would have had with the rabbinical training. Being trained as a rabbi, he had the same training as the high priest would have had in, uh, in Israel. And, uh, and as a result, when Jesus arrested him on the road to Damascus and he was uh, without sight for the glory of the God, that's the brightness of the glory of God that shined around about him, and when he talks about his own experience, Paul talks about his experience about being caught up into the third heaven and heard and saw things, the revelation that he received, Paul said that the whole world would be judged by his gospel. Now, what makes it his? I mean, the gospel is good news about Jesus, isn't it? So what makes it Paul's gospel? Well, there was something about Paul's gospel that he saw that was revealed to him that nobody else had understanding about. Now, with that in mind, remember that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he met the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says that while they didn't know who he was and he was asking them, they were all upset about uh, Jesus having been killed and crucified and that kind of stuff. And so he asked them what was going on. And they said, well, man, where have you been? Haven't you heard about all these things that have taken place in Jerusalem? And And Jesus, without them knowing who he is, Jesus says... Oh, fools and slow, slow of heart, don't you know that the Old Testament speaks of, of the things that the Christ must suffer? And he took him through all the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament scriptures, about things pertaining to and about him. That's what the book of Hebrews is. The book of Hebrews is the same seminar, if you will. I've, I've always wanted tapes from that seminar, that talk that Jesus had with the, on the road to Emmaus with those two guys. The book of Hebrews is the closest thing we get to. As such, Paul's revelation was an understanding of what the Old Testament said about Jesus, what he fulfilled, and what it means to us. Now, the key to understanding the book of Hebrews is what we talked about uh, primarily last week, a little bit the week before too, but primarily last week, and it's in the first three verses of the, of the book. So we're going to start with the first three verses again, and I'm going to refer back to it. After we get out of chapter 1, I may not go back to the Scriptures, but I'll talk about the same principle. Because if you don't understand the principle... That, uh, that the Holy Ghost inspires the writer. I, again, I believe it's Paul. But if you don't understand the principle that the Holy Spirit inspires the writer to write first and foremost, then the rest of the book of Hebrews is really difficult to understand. I'll go even further as to say this. I think a lack of understanding of what these first three verses talk about is the reason, the biggest reason why the church, modern day church, at least the Western church, is powerless. Because they don't understand who Jesus is. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3 tell you who Jesus is. And it's not who most of the church thinks he is. God who at sundry times in a diverse manner spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things. By whom also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. And upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now folks there are six different things that are identified about Jesus in verses 2 and 3. Six different things. And of those six things two conditions or two um, states of Jesus being are discussed. In other words, there's two parts to man. The book of Hebrews covers what's known in theological circles as the hyperstatic union more than anything else. The hyperstatic union is a long, fancy word for saying that Jesus was both God and man. Jesus had two functions. Who we know of as Jesus Christ operated in two functions. He operated as God, deity, and he operated as man or the mediator. So he had a mediatorial role and he had a creator or deity role. Now, most everybody focuses on the deity role. And if you were writing to the Jews and trying to convince the Jews, and, and we know this was Paul's experience throughout his ministry. The book of Acts is really, really uh, detailed about some of the things and the persecution that he experienced at the hand of the Jews. His letters refer to these things and tells us more information about it as well. 
Paul knew that the Jews did not understand Christianity, and because they didn't understand Christianity, they wouldn't turn loose of the law of Moses. And so Paul went to every city that he went to, he'd go to the synagogues, and he would reason with them in the synagogues according to the Old Testament Scriptures. Um, I, actually, I'll tell you what, turn back with me to, uh, to Acts chapter seven, uh, 17. Look at Acts chapter 17. Let me show you Paul's method of operation for ministry. Acts chapter 17. We'll start reading in verse 2. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 2. It said, and this is, um, uh, this is Thessalonica where he came to. And notice it says in verse 2, and Paul, as his manner was, do you see that phrase? As his manner was. In other words, if we were writing in modern day English, we'd say Paul did the same thing here that he did everywhere else. This is what Paul did when he went to a new city to preach Jesus for the first time. This is the way that he operated. Now, now you tell me, is this ministry inspired by the Holy Ghost or not? What I want you to get, what I want you to see, what I want to get across to you is Paul's manner was what the, was the pattern that the Holy Ghost gave him. Now, why would the Holy Ghost give him Paul's pattern? Whatever this pattern is, why would he give him the pattern that he gave him? It had to have something to do with the revelation that he received. Paul's revelation, coming from a standpoint of the Jew, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Nobody ex- uh, was better than him as far as zeal in persecuting the church and all the things that he talks about himself. He says, I was the, the top Jew. I was the top one to persecute those that were talking about turning loose of the law of Moses. Now, he's writing a letter to others saying... Turn loose of the law of Moses. Why? Because he's seen something. He's had something revealed to him that causes him to realize, here's why Jesus is better. And that's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. So here's what his manner was. Here's the way Paul's ministry operated. As Paul's manner was, he went in unto them, and three Sabbath days, that means three different weeks, he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. What's he talking about? When Luke's writing this by their inspiration of the Holy Ghost, what scriptures is he talking about? Folks, all they had was the Old Testament. Paul didn't take letters in. He didn't take his book and try to sell it. He didn't have all the letters written and compiled and bound and published and said, I've got something for you. It would have been okay if he had, but that's not what he had. All they had were the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. What we would know of is Genesis through Malachi. That's what he had, and that's what he used to reason with them. He's using the Old Testament. So when in the book of Hebrews we see him quoting the Old Testament, he's operating in letter form according to his normal pattern when he went to a new town. That's why the book of Hebrews contains more Old Testament scriptures than any other letters. Far and away more. So as Paul's manner was, he went in unto, unto them, and three Sabbath day reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. What, did he, what is he reasoning? Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. Notice Christ, the Messiah. He's reasoning with them, with the Jews, who know about the Messiah. They know about the Christ. They're looking for Him. So he's reasoning. He's taking the Old Testament Scriptures that they both agree on. Here's what the Old Testament says that the Messiah would do. Here's what the Old Testament says that the Messiah would be. Here's what it says that he would accomplish. And here's what it said that he would suffer. He's reasoning with them out of the Old Testament that Christ would suffer and that this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ. Notice he talks about two things. He talks about Christ and he talks about Jesus. He's reasoning with them, first of all, he's finding common ground. He's saying, let's talk about what the Messiah, what the Old Testament says about the Messiah. Let's talk about what the Scriptures, the only Scriptures they had. They didn't have an Old Testament. Let's see what the law and the prophets say about the Messiah. The Jews are jumping in on that. They're all they're on board. Yes, amen. The Messiah, yeah, look at all the things. Isaiah 53, look at what he's going to suffer. Look at what he's going to do. Oh, man, isn't that going to be great? Then he turns it around and said, this Jesus... The man was the Christ. He preached the hyperstatic union. And forgive me for using that theological term, but I want you to understand that that's whatever all the theological scholars and all these guys, they put it in these flowery terms, they put it in these these hard-to-understand principles. Paul preaches it as a normal course. 
Here's the work that the Old Testament says, the Scriptures say, that Christ would do. Jesus was the guy. Paul's message was to preach the humanity of Jesus fulfilling the Christ Messiah prophecies. Do you see that? That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Um, I tell you what, we're real, real quickly here in Acts chapter 18. Look with me over to, uh, to verse 24. We know that uh, Paul goes to, uh, to Corinth and he spends 18 months there and he meets Aquila and Priscilla and he gets them saved and he teaches them the, the, the truth of, that he's had revealed. He teaches them about Jesus and it says that sometime later Apollos comes through that town. Verse 24, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, and an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. Now Aquila and Priscilla have left Corinth and they've gone to Ephesus. Apollos comes down through Ephesus and he's mighty in what? What does that mean? Folks, you need to understand, the, the church in the book of Acts preached a totally different thing than what we preach. At least they came about it from a totally different angle. We take Paul's letters written to the Gentiles who don't have Jewish backgrounds and talk about what we have in Christ. The Jews, however, have a background that they, if they will, that they can look at and they can say, Oh, wow, Jesus did that. The Gentiles don't even know that that was spoken about. Do you understand where I'm coming from? So Apollos comes. He knows the Old Testament. And he's good at talking about the Old Testament. Well, folks, everything about the Old Testament was the, the Messiah to come. So that had to be part of what he was eloquent in speaking. He's a better speaker than Paul, but he doesn't know too much. Difference in being a good speaker and knowing what you're talking about. Apollos is a great speaker, but he doesn't know what he's talking about relative to Jesus. So what did they do? Verse 25, this man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So he knows the Old Testament up to John. Well, what did John do? John preached the baptism of repentance. He said, there's one coming after me. Well, but it says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. John preached the way of the Lord. That was his message. There's one coming after me. In other words, he prepared the way by saying, he's right on my heels. But he didn't tell anybody who he was. He told his disciples, his closest disciples, but that wasn't his ministry. That wasn't his message. He preached the Messiah that is prophesied is coming. He's soon to come. That's what Apollos knew. Maybe, an Apollo, maybe Apollos was a, a disciple of John. It's possible. We don't know. So he began to speak boldly, verse 26, in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. What did they teach him? They taught him Paul's revelation. They taught him what Paul had taught them in the 18 months that he had been with them in Corinth. He lived with them. He's with them day and night. He's put a lot into them in 18 months. So much so that they become the leader Pastors of one of the churches that he establishes. So they expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he, Apollos, was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them with much, helped them much, which had believed through grace, for he mightily convinced the Jews. And that publicly. What did he convince the Jews? He's not convincing the Jews with the baptism of John. But now when he receives Paul's revelation through Aquila and Priscilla, teaching him what Paul had, re had revealed to him, the things that we're going to see in the book of Hebrews and the other things that we see in the letters that he wrote to the churches, notice it says, he finally convinced the Jews and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Aquila and Priscilla, because of what they learned from Paul about Jesus being God and man now teach Apollos that Jesus is the Christ. And so what's it do? It transforms his ministry so that now he's convincing the Jews, because he's eloquent and mighty in the Old Testament Scriptures, that the prophecies concerning the Christ were fulfilled by the man, Jesus. Back to Hebrews chapter 1. 
In the first three verses, first, uh, in verses 2 and 3, there are six different things that are mentioned. Four things are mentioned about Jesus' mediatorial role. In other words, his humanity. Two things are mentioned about his deity. Let me go through them real quickly. We did last week, but let me cover them real quick. Verse 2, it says, uh, God who spoke in the, by the prophets in, the, in times past, verse 2, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Let me ask you a question. Did God speak to his Son when Jesus was the creator, or did God speak to his Son when Jesus had come to the earth? When he had come to the earth. So it's talking about the mediatorial role of Jesus. It's talking about Jesus the man, not Jesus God, or Christ God. Then it says the second thing. It says, whom he, God, has appointed heir of all things. Now, did God appoint the creator, heir of all things, or the mediator, heir of all things? Well, how can God appoint God? It's kind of like Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power. Notice Acts 10.38 does not say how God anointed Jesus Christ. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. It points out the humanity side of Jesus. Why? Because who can anoint God? Folks, you need to understand something about the Trinity. The Trinity, the principle of the Trinity is that the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are co-equal. That means God the Father doesn't have any more preeminence over the Son to be able to anoint Him or appoint Him or grant Him anything. As God, Jesus couldn't be granted anything because He was the creator of everything. So when the Bible talks about Him being appointed an heir, that means when He was a man. Or as a man, he was appointed heir of all things. Then it tells us the third thing. Notice the third thing it says is talking about the creator side, the deity side of, of Jesus. It said, by whom also he made the worlds. Well, that wasn't as a man. That was as God. So what is Paul, by the Holy Spirit, done right out of the gate? He said, Jesus is both God and man. Now, what is the book of Hebrews going to emphasize? Not the God side but the man side. Why? Because the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to emphasize and, and, and convince, persuade the Jews of the superiority to Christianity over Judaism. And the only way you can do that is to prove that Jesus was the man who inherited everything. If Christianity is better than Judaism, then that means Jesus is better than anything and everything. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about. And if you don't understand that, then so much of the rest of it is blind because you don't know who he's talking about and, 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 and you're left confused. Let me ask you this. Why would Paul, or anybody else for that matter, be impressed or inspired by the Holy Spirit to try to prove that God is greater than the prophets? Well, duh. That's why Paul doesn't talk about, that's why the Holy Spirit doesn't inspire the writer to talk about the deity side very much. He mentions a few things, but it's very limited. But the book is full of the humanity side of Jesus. Okay, the next one, verse 3. Here's the fourth of the sixth. It says, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. Those are two things that Jesus was before he came to the earth. So what is it talking about? It's talking about the deity side. So it starts off with two things about Jesus as the man, the mediator. Then it speaks of two things as Jesus, the creator or deity. Now it's going to speak of two other things. It says Jesus was the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. That's deity. That's part of deity too. I should have read that. When he had by himself purged our sins. So what did he do? He purged our sins. How did he purge our sins? As God or as man? Notice the phrase, by himself. When he by himself had purged our sins. What does that mean? That means man became the sacrifice for mankind. Why? Because God can't be a legal sacrifice. You know why the bulls of go blo uh, the, the bloats of gulls? <laughs> I've got way too much to say tonight. You can tell that. You know why the, the blood of bulls and goats was not a worthy sacrifice? Because it's not in the same class as man. An animal is not, in, is not in man's class. You know why God couldn't be a worthy sacrifice for mankind? Because God's not in man's class. The animal is below or beneath man's class. God was above man's class. So it can't be a legal sacrifice. It's got to be a one-for-one. One. If mankind is going to be redeemed, then this has to be a blood of a man. That's what this means. When Jesus had by himself as a man. 
That's why on the cross he's saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's not God hanging on the cross, folks. He's man having been made sin. Is this making any sense? Okay, when he by himself had purged our sins, here's number six. That has to, the, the fifth one has to do with his humanity. Number six, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. As God or as man? Most of the church looks at Jesus as God sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Uh-uh. It's the man Jesus who has been appointed heir of all things that sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's why Paul then talks about what all different things Jesus is better than. Now, let me ask you a question. He starts off in chapters 1 and 2, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. He talks about Jesus being better than the angels. That's supposed to be our topic tonight, if we get there. Jesus is better than the angels. Why the angels? The Jews aren't stuck on angels. They're stuck on Moses. Why angels? Turn back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. While you're turning there, let me make a statement. The Bible talks about Jesus coming to the earth. God taking on the form of a man. We know that. We know about the virgin birth. That's how it happened. That's how it, that was the importance of all those things that happened. Let me ask you a question. How hard was it for God to get into the earth? God had been to the earth lots of times. He had appeared in lots of different ways. Getting into the earth is not a problem. Bypassing the man in order for Jesus to be born of a virgin really wasn't hard either. I mean, when you're a creator of the universe, you kind of can make things work the way you want to. That was easy. Jesus returning back to the Father, however, was not easy at all. Because Jesus came to the earth by the hand of God, by the operation of God. That's why the virgin birth is so important. But he went back to the Father only as a man could go having paid the, the, paid the penalty and made the sacrifice. That's why Jesus is sweating drops of blood in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's when he knows we may not recognize it. Most of the church still doesn't get it, I don't believe. But we see Jesus sweating great drops of blood and saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But if there's some other way, why? Because he's facing the impossibility of a man being the sacrifice for mankind. He's on his own. That's why the Bible says by himself he purged our sins. He's on his own. God can't help him. He either pulls this off or it all goes down the tubes. Do you understand that? That's why Jesus is looking for his disciples to help. He said, can't you pray with me for an hour? I'm facing the most difficult thing in all of eternity. And everything hangs in the balance. Can't you help me? The angels could come and strengthen him, which they did when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. But that's it. It's still up to him to do. It's still up to him to do. Why angels? Why does Paul start with the angels? Why does the Holy Ghost inspire the writer to start with the angels? Look to, uh, this is Stephen's defense. Let's begin in verse um, 51. This is just before they stoned Stephen, and Paul's standing there and, and consenting to it. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He says, here's what Stephen says to the Jews. Same group, same ones that Paul's writing to later. I don't know if it's the same individuals. I'm sure some of them would be. They're in Jerusalem. That's where the letter winds up. So he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. Then he asks the question, which of the prophets have your, have your fathers not persecuted? I changed the wording around, but that's what he's saying. Which prophet didn't you persecute? And have they slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been the betrayers and the murderers? The prophets were just trying to tell you of the Messiah to come. You say you believe in the Messiah, but you've killed the very people that told you about him coming. Good news. Who have received, he's talking about the prophets, He's talking about the law that was given. Who have received the law by disposition of angels and have not kept it. Now, please notice again verse 53. He's saying the prophets gave you the law by the disposition of angels. And your fathers didn't keep it. 
If Paul had started off talking about the prophets, if he had started off talking about Jesus being better than Moses, and he gets there, he gets there in chapter 3, some of chapter 4. If he starts off talking about Moses, he starts too late because the law was received by angels. Angels were the agent whereby the law was given to Moses. The Jews are really, really interested in angels, folks. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 says that the angel or the messenger of the covenant is the one that will preserve everything. It's the word messenger in the King James, but it's translated angel more often than it is messenger. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2 tells about the angel of the Lord which spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Now, we know this is Jesus. We know from the other things that are said that this is Jesus that, that, that does most of these things, if not all of them. But it's spoken of in the Old Testament Scriptures as angels. So angels carry a big, big place of importance where the Jews are concerned. Genesis chapter 16, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord is the one that delivered Hagar. Genesis chapter 22 says, The angel of the Lord is the one that stopped Abraham from offering Isaac as a sacrifice. Genesis 48, Jacob, who is Israel, said that the angel delivered him from evil. In other words, all the blessings that came on him, he said it was the angel of the Lord that did it. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 16, it's identified that the angel delivered Israel from Egypt. And we know this was Jesus. We know it was Jesus in operation, but they don't. And the reason we know of Jesus in operation and doing these things is because of what Paul told us. They didn't know anything about that. So where does Paul start? He starts with angels. He's got to prove that Jesus is better than angels. Because in the Jews' mind, angels are way up here and man's way down here. So if he just starts with Moses or, or some of the other fathers, the prophets and some of those guys, well, okay, yeah, Jesus is better than, than them, but you still got the angels, you still got all the people in the heavenlies and all that kind of stuff. Not so. Notice in, in uh, Galatians chapter 3, let me read uh, verse 19 to you. Galatians 3:19. I have no prayer of getting through this tonight, folks. But I have to, so I'm going to I'll give you I'll hit the high spots and we'll move forward. Notice Galatians chapter 3 verse 19, Paul is talking about the law. He said, "Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made." In other words, he's saying the law fulfilled a purpose, but only for a time. This is part of his revelation. This is part of what he revealed. He understood through the revelation of the Holy Ghost, he understood that the seed that God made the promise to, Abraham and your seed will be blessed, the seed was not the natural descendants of Abraham. The seed was Jesus. That's why he goes further in Galatians chapter 3 and he says, and if you're Christ, then are you Abraham's seed? Because the promise, the blessing of Abraham is to Christ's people. Christ's followers, those that are in Christ, not to the natural seed of Abraham. So what did the law serve? The law served until the seed should come, Jesus, to whom the promise was made. And it, the promise, was ordained, or I'm sorry, not the promise, the law, was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. Who's the mediator? Moses. He's the lawgiver. So notice what Paul is telling us about the law, and what the Jews consider about the law. The law was given by the angels. If Jesus is somehow greater than the angels, now it's not a matter of angels here and man here and, and Jesus just on top of man. Now it's Jesus way up on top of these guys. And the way Paul does it is masterful. It is such a mastery of the Holy Spirit because he starts from the top and works his way all the way down. Therefore, verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. After talking about Jesus as a man, Jesus as a man, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is a man, and Jesus is a man. Then he says, being made so much better than the angels. Why? Because he's seated as a man at the right hand of God. Being so much, being made so much better than the angels. By the way, this word being made literally is the word becoming. Becoming. Paul's saying, he's not talking about Jesus' deity. Certainly Jesus' deity was better than the angels. But as a man, he through his sacrifice became better than the angels. 
as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, beginning in verse 5, Paul is going to identify, the Holy Spirit is going to identify through the writer. Again, I believe it's Paul. Forgive me if I keep saying that, but I, 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 I don't want to be dogmatic on it, but it really means a lot to me. Whether it does to you or not, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Words of work. There are seven different things that Paul identifies, seven different Old Testament scriptures, affirmations that he makes from the Old Testament about Jesus being better than the angels. Not Christ, Jesus, the man, being better than the angels. And notice where he starts off. He starts off in verse 5, and he says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now this is from Psalm 2, verse 7. Now, when is he talking about Jesus being begotten? He's talking about Jesus being begotten as a baby in Bethlehem. Now, there were two different times in Jesus' ministry that a voice from heaven came out, spoke aloud where everybody could hear it, and said, this is my beloved son. Two times, at his baptism and at his transfiguration. And the question that the, that the writer asked is, which angel did God ever say that to? Yet we know he said it to Jesus. He said it to him, about his birth, and he said it publicly twice during his ministry. How are you going to compare that with angels? Then the second thing that he mentions, the second Old Testament affirmation, is in verse 5 as well. And he said, and again, in other words, he said, and to which of the angels said he anything like this? I will be to him a father, and he shall be unto me as his son. Now this, I'm going to have to read this to you. First Chronicles chapter 7. David is wanting to build God a temple. Chapter 7 starts off and David says, you know, God's been without a temple long enough. I've built my house. Everything else is in order. We've defeated all the enemies. So I'm going to build him a house. And Nathan says, yeah, go for it. Uh, wait a minute. I said First Chronicles. It must be Second Chronicles. I wrote the wrong thing in my notes. Let me get over there. Nope, it's not it either. Second Samuel? No, no, it's not Second Samuel. Uh, it's uh, Chronicles version of Second Samuel seven. Does it give you a, a, another reference to Second Samuel seven? Oh, that's what happens when you study on a computer instead of your Bible. It's uh, it's also referenced in uh, Psalm uh, um, what is it? Psalm eighty nine, I believe it is. Come on, come on, come on. First Chronicles chapter 17 starts off where David says, I want to build, build God a house. Nathan, who is the prophet, says, yeah, go for it. Good thing. Good idea. In the night, God speaks to Nathan and says, go back and tell David, don't do it. He's not the one that's going to do it. And then he speaks some things to, uh, to, to David about what's going to happen afterwards. Notice beginning in verse 11. It says, and it shall come to pass when thy days be expired. That means, David, here's what's going to happen after you die. Okay. Now, folks, please understand that Solomon took over as king of Israel while David was still alive. So this can't be talking about Solomon. Okay? Right? Here's God saying through the prophet, this is what's going to happen after you're gone. Solomon was on the throne when David died. So that can't qualify. So he said, it shall come to pass when your days be expired that thou must go to be with thy fathers that I will raise up thy seed after thee which shall be of thy sons and I will establish his kingdom. This is talking about Jesus. And he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Now if we just look at it from a natural side we can say, well yeah, see that's Solomon. Solomon built the temple. He's not talking about Solomon. He's not talking about the temple, the Old Testament temple. He's talking about the church. Notice verse 13. He said, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee. Who is that? Saul. Now, folks, I want to refer you to a couple of things in the New Testament. Jesus said in, in John chapter 8 and in John chapter 10, I want you to see these two things. And, and uh, um, we may come back over some of this later on in, in Hebrews as well. But God, uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, to the, to the Jews about... Um, they're saying that he has a devil and, and that kind of stuff. 
And Jesus says, we'll start reading in verse uh, 38. I speak that which I have seen with my father. Notice Jesus is calling God his father. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. And they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Sounds good, doesn't it? Naturally, that's true. But Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So there must be something more to being a seed of Abraham than just a natural descendant as far as God's concerned, right? That's what Galatians 3 is about. Jesus goes on in verse 40, But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. They said unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Okay, we tried to say Abraham was our father. That didn't go over real well. Jesus shot us down on that. Now we'll say God's our father. And Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Notice he didn't say he was God. He said he came from God. Even now, Jesus is identifying himself as humanity, not as deity. I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not yet understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You are your, of your father, the devil. Okay, you thought you were the children of Abraham. You're not. You thought you were the children of God. You're not. You're the children of the devil. I'm sure that really blessed him. You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not yet believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say not we say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and has a devil? Folks, here's what you do. When people pin you down with the word, you say, well, you're just crazy. Jesus answered and said, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you do dishonor me. And I seek not my own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. Verse 52 is what I want you to see. He's been leading up to the whole thing. Now verse 52 is they show what they think. The Jews show what they think. They said unto him, Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that you have a devil. Or in other words, we know you've got to be crazy. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. They're saying that can't be true because Abraham and the prophets are already dead. And if your words were right, then that means they wouldn't have died. (laughs) Then Then they tell why they think of this way. Art thou greater than our father Abraham? Well, yeah. You don't know that. Wait a few years and Paul will write you a letter about it. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead, whom thou makest... Uh, art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets, which are dead too? Whom makest thou thyself? In other words, who are you saying that you are? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I don't know him, I would I would be like a, a liar like unto you. But I do know him and keep his saying. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 says that, Jesus, that God preached the gospel unto Abraham and he rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Then they answered, and here's the basis for everything that they've been saying so far. Then they answered and said, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Notice their basis for thinking. You can't be from God because you're a man. You got it? You can't be God because you're a man. We see you. You're not 50 years old. If you were God, you'd be like eternal. I mean, if you even looked 500, then we'd think, well, who knows? But you're not even 50 years old yet. You can't be God. You can't have seen Abraham. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? He's saying, you're seeing the man, 
but I was here before Abraham ever showed up. Then they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went through the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Turn with me over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, that was one of the things that was prophesied about the Messiah. Paul identifies as Jesus. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. I who? Jesus the man. He's saying, as a man, I am one with the Father. Then they took up stones to kill him. I want you to notice, every time Jesus identifies the union between man and God in himself, that's when they want to kill him. Because as far as the Jews are concerned, that can't happen. Even the prophets, even Moses, was just a man. That's why this is so important, where Paul is identifying from the Old Testament Scriptures what it says about the Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled it. We'll go on to verse 6 now. He says, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. This, uh, this phrase, let all the angels worship him, is Psalm 97, verse 7. Now, here's the part that, that the King James doesn't bring out. Notice where it says, And again. This word again doesn't mean, and the second time he says it. This word again means the second time Jesus comes. First time Jesus came was when he was born in a manger. Second time he comes, he's going to come with an army. We're not talking about the rapture. We're not talking about the second coming of Jesus. We're talking about what's called the second advent. That means at the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus comes and you and I will be with him, along with all the angels, that's when this is talking about. And it says, and when he comes again, he says of him, he says of the first begotten, into the world. The world. This word world means the inhabited world. It's talking about the earth. It says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now remember his question. His question was, which of the angels has he ever said this to? Verse 5, did he ever say, thou art my son? Nope. Did he ever say, I'm your father and you'll be my son? Nope. And when they come the second time, is he going to say to any angels, let all the other angels worship you? Nope. The point is, this is what is said about Jesus. Now, folks, let me, let me um, turn over to Revelation chapter 5 real quickly. Revelation chapter 5 tells us about when Paul... Uh, um, What's his name? John sees the church standing before the throne of heaven after the rapture while the tribulation stuff is beginning. It says, tells about what the, the saints sung a new song saying, you are worthy to take the book. This is verse 9. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tongue, kindred and tongue and people and nation and made unto us, made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Then verse 11. Notice verse 11 of, of Revelation chapter 5. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. And the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, if that's a mathematical equation, that means 100 trillion. We don't know for sure that it is, but there's got to be a reason why it says it that way. It, it either means a number you can't number or it means 100 trillion. You take your pick. And what did they say? Verse 12, saying with a loud voice. Here's what the angels are saying. Worthy is the Creator. No, worthy is the Lamb. He's talking about the humanity of Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus as the man seated in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Folks, it wasn't God that was slain. You can't kill God. Jesus laid down his mortal life. He allowed himself to become mortal to pay the price for mankind's sins. You can't kill God. But Jesus died. How did he die? He died as man by himself to purge our sins. He couldn't become mortal until he was made sin. But once he was made sin, he was subject to death. Jesus said himself, no man takes my life, 
But I have the power to lay it down. If I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it back up. Well, how do you have power to lay it down, Jesus? Only through sin. Because without sin, you can't kill him. Well, he didn't sin on his own. So how did sin come into the picture? He was made sin on the cross. Do you see it? Worthy, the angels sang. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This shows us the fulfillment which we will witness firsthand. It just tells us what we're going to see. You're going to be standing there. Folks, the Bible says you're standing there. John saw you standing there. Remember that verse of Scripture. When you hear the angels, you'll be standing there going, wow, look at all this stuff. And all of a sudden, the angels are going to break out. Well, the the redeemed will break out in a song. Worthy is the Lamb. Thou hast redeemed us unto God by your own precious blood. And then the angels will start singing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. You're going to think, wait a minute, I've read this before. This is like deja vu all over again. I'm starting to get excited. This is it, if you haven't ever seen it. So again, the question is the same. Which under the angels has he said this? Which of the angels has he said the other angels will worship you? None. But he said it to Jesus. And he knows they know. He knows that they know the Old Testament. He knows that the, the Pharisees that this letter is going to get to. He, he attaches it to the letter written to the Galatians where the Jews have been sent from Jerusalem. But he knows this letter is going to be detached and sent back to Jerusalem. History tells us it got there and everybody's pondering over it. Everybody's pouring over it. And now you've got a guy that's been trained with the same training as the high priest, knowing everything about the Old Testament that there is to know better than the people that are reading the letter. But he knows the writer, the author. Paul knows that the people know what he's talking about. And they have nothing to argue against it. When Jesus was born, what did the angels do? They appeared to the shepherds and started singing in with the heavenly choir. What's going to happen when he comes back? They know that the Bible says that the angels are worshiping him there too. Okay, verse, where are we at? Verse 7. And of the angels, he says, in other words, he's saying, Paul's writing to the Jews, saying, now here's what the Old Testament says, here's what the Scriptures say about the angels. It says of the angels who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now we've already read, we've already read in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, that Jesus made everything by himself and for himself. Everything that was created, in other words, in Genesis chapter 1 where it says, and God said, let there be light, that was Jesus. When the light was made, when the earth was made, when the people were made, when the animals were made, that was Jesus. Jesus is the creator. The Bible tells us God did it by Jesus. Now remember, the principle of the Trinity, they're co-equal and co-eternal. They all have the same no beginning. They all have the same place and position. So in order for God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit to work together, they had a conference. And they came up with, from, from before the world was ever considered, they came up with, here's how we're going to do it. God said, I'll come up with a plan. Jesus, you be the creator. Holy Spirit, you be the helper. Everybody says, yeah, sounds good. Oh, Pastor Mike, how can you possibly say that? We see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, they have a conference and they said, let us make man in our own image. There had to be some way that they had some division of, of, of the labor or the division of the activities and the division of the work because they do not step on each other. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak of himself. He speaks and testifies of Jesus. Why didn't the Holy Spirit get tired of that? Why didn't the Holy Spirit one day say, come to the church and say, I'm tired of all this Jesus stuff. How about me? Because he's God. Why doesn't God say, you know, there's a lot of attention being placed on the Son and not much on me. I'm getting kind of tired of this. Folks, there is no division of, or there is no superior position in heaven. God the Father is not above Jesus the Son. All three are co-equal and co-eternal. Please understand that. That means everything that happened, happened by choice. It means the three in one 
are united in purpose as well as activity. And that's the picture we're supposed to have with us. Nobody trying to put themselves above the others. So again, the question is, which of the angels, or here's what the angels, the, the scriptures say about the angels. It says that they are made ministering spirits and flames of fire. Now, what does he know? He knows that they know the claim that Jesus is the creator. So who made them spirits? Jesus did. The Bible says in Colossians 1.16, Jesus made everything in heaven and earth visible and invisible. That's angels too. He's not trying to emphasize Jesus' superiority over angels as deity. So he just refers to the Old Testament scripture. It says in the Old Testament that the angels are spirits and they're flames of fire. Now, fire always has a, a reference to judgment and it probably also refers to their appearance. But it's saying that Jesus made them the way that they are. Psalm 103, verse 20, something like that, is a real important scripture to the Jews because it says, Bless the Lord who maketh his angels that excel in strength. That's one of the reasons why the Jews have such a high opinion of the angels. Man, they're on the top of the heap. Uh-uh. Not anymore. Now, chapter 2 is going to tell us that Jesus was made as, as a human. He was made and came to the earth a little lower than the angels for a little while. But now because of his inheritance, because of what he's gained, he's way back above him now. So it says of the angels that they're spirits and says they're flames of fire. With a reference to Jesus being their creator. Then verses 8 and 9. But Jesus, but under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. This is Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. It goes on into verse 9 too. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. This is where Paul is starting to nail the, the, the hammer down. He's starting to really nail it and clinch it on the other side. He says, the angels are spoken of as spirits because they were created beings. They were created that way. And they're flames of fire. They excel in strength. Yeah, they're, they're, they're big, they're big stuff. Yep. No question about that. But of the sun, that's what it says of the angels. But of the sun, Jesus, who came to the earth as a man under the sun, God said, thy throne, O God. Do you know what that's a reference to? That's God finally now identifying Jesus as the man. Is God. Not he's God because he was once the creator. He's God because he's the man who gained the victory. He's the conqueror. He's the one that defeated the work of sin and redeemed mankind. Well, what about verse 9, though? It says, he said, God, even thy God. Well, how can, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can God be above Jesus? God was above Jesus when he was here on the earth as a man. And as a man, Jesus openly said that the Father in heaven was his God. But now that he has a throne, he's God. Folks, the angels are around the throne. Jesus is sitting in it. Which is greater? The ones around the throne? The one who has the throne? That's the point that Paul's making. Verse 10 through 12 comes from Psalm 102. I'm going, to have to, I'm going to have to read some of this to you. I'm closing in. Psalm 102. We'll read, from, uh, we'll read from the King James first, and then we'll pick out these verses. Okay, verse 10 through 12, it says, and, meaning and of the Son, it says, of Jesus that says this, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as does a garment or a cloth, and as a vesture, 
a piece of clo- a piece of clothing. Shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Now turn back to uh, Psalm 102, if you want to look at this. If you don't, that's okay. If you want to just listen, that's okay. Psalm 102 seems to the natural eye to be a prophet complaining about tough times. Now, whether it's a Psalm of David or not, it doesn't identify itself as such. But it's somebody that's got a place with God, and man, they're really complaining. Man, things are tough. I mean, it's tough. We're suffering down here. It starts off and says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not your face from me in the day when I'm in trouble. Incline your ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as in a hearth. My heart is smitten and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I watch in him as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they are mad against me. They that are mad against me are sworn to, against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. I can't read any more of this, folks. I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit is saying something about this verse. Now, the verses that refer to Jesus that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, refers to are not just isolated verses that are taken out, specifically the ones from the Psalms. The Psalms have a specific purpose and a meaning behind them. This meaning has to do with somebody that's in great distress. And they're in such distress that they're saying, we're wasting away down here, God. You've got to help us out. You've got to do something about this. Now, without the knowledge of the Holy Spirit... We don't know that that's speaking of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is impressing Paul to say, this is talking about Jesus, and this is what it says of him. What's the answer? The answer begins in verse 25. Of old, here's God, here's heaven answering back. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth. That was his creator. And the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Now, it's a man complaining to God about trouble and suffering here on the earth. It shows you a great picture of Jesus and the things that he endured, the, the, the sacrifice, the loneliness, and all the things. You know how the Bible says, Paul even says in, in Hebrews, he says, Jesus is not, we don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. This tells you what Jesus felt like here on the earth. So many times people are so focused on how bad things are for them and how much trouble they're in and, and how bad they feel. Read what the Bible says about how Jesus felt. And he held out. He didn't sin. What are you going to do? So here's heaven's answer. They shall perish. The heavens and the earth shall perish, but you shall endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall all be changed. But you are the same. Thy years shall have no end. In other words, it's showing us Jesus' sufferings as the mediator conqueror. But at the end, he'll roll up the heavens like a cloth. The Bible says in, in the book of Revelation, it says the heavens are pulled back like a curtain. The Holy Spirit said the same thing in Revelation that he said back in Psalm 102, wherever we are. Holy Spirit said exactly the same thing. What does it show? It shows Jesus, the man seated at the right hand of God, when he does come back, and again, this is the second advent, when he does come back, not the rapture, but the second advent, when, he, when you and I come back with him, it shows that he has complete power over the creation. Now, if Jesus has complete power over the creation, what's the big deal about angels? And that's his point. Finally, He concludes with verse 13 by quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, But to which of the angels said God at any time? Anybody find anything about this spoken to angels? No, of course not. But unto which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies be thy footstool. But that's what he said to Jesus. Then he concludes by saying this, Aren't they all just ministering spirits? Talking about the angels that, that the Jews put such importance upon. Aren't they all just ministering spirits? Jesus is the conqueror. But aren't the angels just ministering spirits? Do you see the point he's making? 
through seven different Old Testament scriptures, doing according to what his manner was. The same thing he'd do in the Old Testament concerning, uh, or the same thing he'd do in the new towns where he'd go to preach Jesus. He'd go to the synagogues, he'd take the Old Testament scriptures and say, this is talking about the Messiah. This is talking about the Messiah. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. Jesus is the Christ. Now he says about the angels that they put all their eggs in the basket over. The reason the Moses and the prophets were so important is because what they got, they got from the angels. Paul concludes and says, aren't they just ministering spirits? What's the big deal about angels? Well, as far as superiority is concerned, there is no big deal about angels. But then notice what he says about the ministering spirits. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation? Please notice it does not say minister to. Please notice it does not say minister to. It says they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, what are heirs? That's an interesting word. We've seen that word before in this chapter. What's the deal with the heirs? Jesus was appointed heir of all things. What is he saying? He's laying the foundation for the believers as being joint heirs with Christ. We know from the letter that he wrote to the Ephesians that just as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, so are you. So if the angels are ministering spirits, ministering around the throne, they're at Jesus' work to do as he commands. Guess what? They are here to minister for you as you issue commands from the Word of God. Chapter 2 is going to talk about how Jesus is better and how He's made the way better for the believer. How that the believer is even exalted above the angels. Folks, I want you to understand, everything about this is not Jesus as God. It's Jesus as the man seated at the right hand of God the Father. If Jesus conquered the world as God, and and we've talked about this in healing school a lot. Most people think Jesus healed the sick because he was the son of God. He didn't. He healed the sick. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory. That's why Acts 10.38 says God had to anoint him with the Holy Ghost and power in order to be able to heal the sick. How do you anoint God? God wasn't anointing God. God was anointing the man that had emptied himself of his deity to come to the earth as a man. To defeat sin and sickness and death. Can you see that? If you recognize. If you start. Let me challenge you to do something. Start thinking about. And meditating on Jesus. As the man seated at the right hand of God. Just like you. Same Holy Spirit you've got. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're equal with Jesus as creator. Or as deity or anything like that. Jesus was certainly the preeminent one. I'm not talking about trying to steal some of his glory. Uh, And people take things that we say like this and they go to extremes. In fact, where Jesus, uh, we didn't read it, but over in, um, uh, what is it? John chapter 8, I believe it is, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to kill him. They wanted to do away with him. And Jesus asked the question, he says, what are you guys so upset about? Doesn't it say in the Old Testament scriptures, doesn't it say where God called man God's? If that was true of man, humanity, that was just created the highest of God's creation here on the earth, how much more true is it of those whom he has sanctified? Now, he's talking about himself, but not exclusively. He's saying, I'm the only one that's sanctified so far, but I'm going to lead captivity captive and open the door to heaven so that everybody else can be joint heirs with me, and they'll be just as sanctified too. What is he saying? Is he saying we're rulers of the world? No, but you can be rulers of your world. Is he saying we're equal with Jesus? Well, the Bible says that we are, but not in the sense that most people think. It doesn't mean that if I want to rearrange the geography, I can use my words and do that. But what it does mean is I can change circumstances in my life so that those things which the word says are mine, the promises that the word makes to me, can come to pass on my behalf. And here's what it also means. It means I've got one just like me that conquered death. If he could conquer death now that I have everything that he had, 
I should be able to conquer it in my life too, shouldn't I? Folks, angels are your servants because you've been elevated above them. What do we tell them to do, Pastor Mike? Tell them to go bring the promises of God in. Angels, go and cause the money to come, whatever you're believing for. Angels, whatever is necessary regarding my healing, make it be. Angels, regarding the peace of God in my life, make it so. That's what Paul says. That's what Paul concludes this chapter by saying. Aren't they just ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation? I don't know if I've done you any good, but I preach me happy. Quit looking at Jesus as God and look at him as the man who is the heir now of all things because of his victory. You start relating to Jesus as a man, as a human being that is seated at the right hand of God, not because he was once the creator, but because now he is the heir of all things because of the victory that he's obtained. He has obtained a more excellent name than them, than the angels. What is that name? Well, we see the name is begotten, first begotten. We see that the name is son the Bible says you're just as much a son. He was the first begotten from the dead. That means he was the first, and now you're one of the later ones. You're just as much begotten from the dead as he was, or born from the dead. You're just as much a son or a daughter of God as he is. Over and over and over again, it talks about the place that Jesus has, and the place that he has is because he was a man, not because he was God. Well, I keep saying the same thing over again, so we might as well quit. I, I, I don't know how really how to stop. Let me uh, let me let me quote one last scripture to you. In Isaiah chapter fifty three, it tells us Isaiah fifty three is the chapter about the Messiah. It tells us about Jesus taking our sins. It tells us about Jesus taking our sicknesses. In Isaiah fifty three verse twelve, it says, "Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong." Because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, folks, please notice what it says. It says, here's God saying what he'll do for Jesus as victor, the conqueror over death. He says he'll divide him a portion with the great. Well, what is the portion with the great? He's saying he's going to make him heir of all things. But it didn't say he'll give him the only portion. It says he'll divide the portion with the great. You know what that means? That means you're a joint heir with Christ. And notice what else it says. It says that he will divide the spoil with the strong. I love how it says that. It doesn't say it will divide the spoil with the saved. It says he'll divide the spoil with the strong. Who are the strong? The ones that operate in faith to take hold of what he accomplished. Both folks, faith has always been known as the strong man's way to God. That's why without faith it's impossible to please him. You have an inheritance because Jesus has it made, been made heir of everything. Because he conquered sin, death, and hell as a man. As a man. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you did for us. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, so that we see these things. We recognize that this was Paul's revelation we recognize that this is what was the, the foundation of his ministry. Help us to see who our Lord and Savior really is. Not just our religious ideas that have been handed down through man's thoughts, but help us to see who he really was and is. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.